you are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight on the Twilight Zone podcast, we take a break from our analysis of season two of the new show to say welcome to an old friend of the show and someone who has maybe something to distract us from what's going on in the world at the moment. But uh, he is my friend, Arlen Schumer. Arlen, welcome back to the Twilight Zone podcast. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's great to see you and great to be here. You are the author of Visions from the Twilight Zone, a book which, you know, sits proudly on my shelf. You're a Twilight Zone historian. In a situation like this, we got to find a new way of being passionate about what we love. we got to find a new way of talking about these things. And and you seem to have been able to, to do that. So that's why I wanted to speak to you tonight. Tell us about what you've been doing since all this broke. Well, you know, Tom, every negative always has a positive come out of it. Mm-hmm. Something good always comes out of something bad. All those cliches, like there's a silver lining in every cloud. So, of course, I mean, look, even when the United States was in the Depression, you know, in a sense, World War II brought us out of that and into prosperity. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's always darkest before the dawn. For me personally, I find it interesting that one of the things I notice in this whole quarantining and and, um, uh, um, social distancing is that I'm a freelance artist. I work out of my home. Mm-hmm. I'm used to getting up and being my own boss and having to discipline and create work and try to make money and once a week forage for food. You know, my so-called lifestyle hasn't changed really one bit <laughs> or most of the freelance artists I know. What's happening, Tom, is that the rest of the world, laymen, uh-huh. are, are for the first time not only realizing what it's like to be an independent artist, working out of your home, but also many of them are self-discovering that they actually, after that initial shock of the new, of being home, quote, alone, Mm -hmm. or with your family or whatever, and and having to, in a sense, be self-motivated and try to create things or stay connected to work, they're actually discovering, Tom, they can do it, Mm -hmm. and that they even might enjoy it. And, you know, what's going to come out of this from a business standpoint is that a lot of companies that have offices are going to realize that a portion of their workforce and in different companies, it's going to be a different proportion Mm -hmm. that they can work at home. That means that office space might shrink. They'll save money. I don't need the giant office if half of my people can work at home and people that are working at home that used to schlep into the office mm-hmm. and you know there's no such thing as a good commute there might be an easier commute but if you've commuted to work commuting sucks yeah you know absolutely. you might love your job but you know my point is is that you know they're realizing hey i don't have to go to an office so i think that's been the sort of positive to come out of this negative for me personally Um, doing these webinars for New York Adventure Club. This was a company in New York City that used to organize live meetup group type events like walking tours of, you know, historic locations in Manhattan. 
Uh Well, the pandemic in March shut all that down. And the guy that runs it, uh, my partner, Corey Schneider, he had to switch to webinars overnight. Mm -hmm. And he needed people that were not only experts to do these webinars, but it has to be visual because you got to show people something on their screen. You can't just talk. So he was talking to a friend of mine who's a Frank Sinatra expert, Will Friedwald, who's who's written like 10 books on Sinatra, probably about doing a Sinatra webinar. And he asked him, do you know anybody else that's an expert in things that's visual? Well, as soon as he heard that, he goes, you got to give Arlen Schumer a call. So ever since April 1st, Tom, I've been doing these pop culture webinars mm-hmm. that are basically drawn from my three kind of um, areas of love and expertise and scholarly work are um, comic book art and history because I'm an illustrator working in a comic book style. And, you know, that's probably my, my biggest area of history. But then there's the Twilight Zone and all the work I've done on the Twilight Zone, the books and the lectures. And, you, you know, on my website, there's my, you know, each of these have a separate page Mm-hmm. on my website comic book history twilight zone and then the music of uh, bruce springsteen mm-hmm. and i think uh, the webinar i'm doing a week after twilight zone is a kind of um history re- a retrospective of his greatest live performances that have been captured on film uh-huh. and by the way i conclude with bruce at hyde park in 2009 giving a very beautiful performance of the song Racing in the Street, which was Joe Strummer's favorite Bruce song. Bruce song. Okay. There would, there would have been no clash if Joe Strummer hadn't seen Bruce Springsteen at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1975 with his manager at the time. Uh-huh. And Bruce was up on stage and, you know, you can see that performance in the Born to Run box set. There's a video of the Hammersmith Odeon show in mm-hmm. color. And it's the E Street Band, the early E Street Band, really at their finest. And Strummer was in the audience. Elvis Costello was in the audience. Peter Gabriel got the idea to go solo because of seeing Bruce in 75. And Joe Strummer, in his autobiography that came out in the year 2000, he was with his manager at the time. He was in a band before The Clash. Mm -hmm. And he's digging Bruce up on stage and he elbows his manager next to him and he goes, that guy is doing up on stage exactly what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. So when I say Bruce is one of the godfathers of punk, along with Iggy Pop and Patti Smith, I know what I'm talking about. But I digress. Okay. Well, oh, thanks to Bruce for that. Back to Twilight. Yeah. Your kind of stock in trade was always not just talking on stage, but it was a multimedia thing. Visual, visual lectures, I call them. Yeah, you're standing there, you're in the rod sailing suit, you're doing your thing, you're talking about it, and no script. You told me that in Binghamton, no script, you're just up there talking. All up here, baby. It's all up there. But it was a very visual thing. How, How do you do that on the web? Well... Uh, the platform I'm using with New York Adventure Club is called Livestorm. Mm. Basically, you know, I create these lectures in Apple's keynote program, which is their version of PowerPoint, mm-hmm. because they have beautiful dissolves that PowerPoint doesn't have. And that's how I like to transition images. 
But for this webinars, you've got to turn your um, PowerPoint or keynote into a PDF file. Mm -hmm. And that's what ends up getting shown, so to speak. So it's like images swiping in one at a time. It's not my ideal. I love the soft dissolves that I get when I do a live show, but because of the internet technology, uh, we tried testing a keynote presentation, but the dissolves end up being very choppy. Mm -hmm. So, but in the case of something like my Twilight Zone webinar, where I'm showing not only still images, but then I go to video clips from the episodes. Yeah. Those, you know, have nothing to do with whether it's a PDF or a keynote, it's the same thing. So it's really only the still images that I'm not entirely satisfied with, but it's good enough that, believe me, people are digging them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I'm getting at here is that, like you told me about your webinar, I signed up for it, I missed it, and then <laughs> you saw me. <laughs> it was like Binghamton all over again, but you sent me another link and I checked it out, and um, I was pleasantly surprised that, I didn't know what it was going to be, you know what I mean? I thought, is it just going to be all and talk? And which is great because you know your stuff. You're a very passionate performer when you're doing this, so that's great. Yeah. But you. it's just, I was impressed that it's not just that. You still right. get all these images in, whether they are what you would like them to be or not. It's still, it's still a really great visual experience, isn't it? I, Tom, thank you. I try to show an image on screen for practically every sentence that I speak mm -hmm. when I'm delivering one of these webinars. So believe me, this isn't your father's art history lectures where, you know, there's a guy with a boring monotone up on a stage and he's showing one image every 10 minutes mm -hmm. and you're falling asleep. I show you an image. I mean, not that I show them so quick you can't register. Believe me, I show an image long enough, but like I said, I literally illustrate every sentence that I speak mm -hmm. with whatever it is that I'm talking about in that sentence, you see an image that pertains. And just like leafing through a beautifully designed book, that's how much time I take on the images to make sure they, they flow smoothly so that as I'm talking off the top of my head, I'm triggering images to move with each sentence I'm speaking. Uh -huh. And that's why I call them visual lectures. You know, the word lecture is such a pejorative, but I couldn't find any other word. I mean, I looked in uh, the Theostorus. <laughs> There's no other word for lecture. If you say presentation, that can mean anything. An exhibit of flat artwork mm -hmm. is a presentation. So lecture, because it sounds like you're being lectured to, you know, that's very negative. So. I chose the word visual lecture because at least the word visual ends in the letter L, lecture begins. So, you know, from a typographic graphic design standpoint, I thought I could brand what I do. It's a little clunky sounding visual lecture, but that's what uh, that's the best thing I come up with. So anybody listening, if they have a better branding name for what I do, let me know. Come to one of my webinars and after... Uh, it's over. Let me know what how you would brand them. But for now, I call them visual lectures. Now you've been doing this for years. You've you've done yes. like like the anniversaries of the Twilight Zone and so on. So what's different about this one that you're doing now? 
Well, the original title, when I came up with this idea back in April, before the George Floyd Black Lives Matter thing exploded at the end of May, mm -hmm. I was looking to do a Twilight Zone webinar because I said to Corey Schneider at New York Adventure Club, we were talking, and I said, there are so many great Twilight Zone episodes that are basically prescient, eerily prescient, for what we're going through with this pandemic, isolation, solitude, loneliness. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as a Twilight Zone aficionado, Tom, off the top of your head, without even seeing my webinar, I bet you you can predict which episodes, just based on those three words mm. and concepts that I would include. Uh -huh. It starts with the very first episode, Where Is Everybody? About a man being isolated in a deserted town of, you know, a bucolic Norman Rockwellian American town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that idea of isolation and, and alienation from your reality is not only the, the, the bedrock foundation of the concept of the Twilight Zone itself. Every episode is about alienation of some type, whether it's people don't know your identity or whether it's you versus the state and you're alienated from the state, all of those episodes. Well, you can't get any more alienated from your reality that if you were the last man on earth and there was nobody else around, mm -hmm. time enough at last. Like I said, w without even going into it, you know which episodes I'm gonna be showing clips of and discussing. It's yeah. the very ones I'm rattling off. There's The Lonely with Jack Warden, where yeah. he's on a prison So, and so many, and anyway, so when I was discussing that with, with um, Corey Schneider, I said I could easily put together a webinar and my original title was Twilight Zone in the Age of Corona. Mm. And from a graphic design standpoint, the O in Corona was the Twilight Zone eyeball. Okay. And I designed the graphic. Well, if you've noticed television commercials, none of them have actually come out and said, blah, 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 Corona. They mm. all say, during these tough times, you know, while you're home more than you thought you would be, you know, nobody's coming out so I think Corey felt the use of the word Corona in the title was too harsh. Yeah. So I changed it to Twilight Zone ahead of its time, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. it was. And the definition of art of any type is it has to be of its time and ahead of its time and timeless. And here we are 60 years later discussing how these episodes that were created 60 years ago are informing what we're going through 60 years later right now. Mm -hmm. And then after the George Floyd thing happened at the end of May and all the protests and the riots, a bunch of other episodes began to be prescient. Mm -hmm. So now, so like I said, I can probably end up doing a, like a part two because I already left out pre-George Floyd like five or six episodes because I'm jamming as much into two and a half hours. Sounds like a long time, but it's like kind of watching a, a live documentary Okay. in which I'm showing still images that bracket the episodes, the clips that I show. Mm -hmm. So to give you context of that episode and what was happening in the country and what is prescient about what we're going through today. Yeah. So there's like, I think I, 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 I think there's 28 video clips from 17 episodes 
And I think I left out five episodes, and that was before George Floyd. Mm-hmm. You know, an episode like I Am the Night, Color Me Black, which I didn't include in the corona theme, but now that episode is prescient for, you know, obviously the civil rights struggles of 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it's like, you know, what's changed? You know, we're, we're, it's like, you know, we made five steps forward and 10 steps back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the point is, is in those two and a half hours, it goes pretty quick. And I hope people think it's like, like I said, it's like watching a live documentary as I deliver it. So people sign up for this thing. And I think it's like 10 bucks or something. Yeah. Don't get money back if not satisfied, by the way. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be asking for my money back then. That's an old American, you know, ad slogan. Double your money back if not satisfied. Okay. Um, so for that, you're on there for two and a half hours doing your thing. Is is there like Q&A afterwards or anything yes. like that? Okay. For, for anybody still left standing at the end, if they, if they can <laughs> you know, go through the endurance test of two and a half hours, you know, anything great like a great movie sometimes you wish it wasn't ending uh that's what i hope is the feeling as this thing's going on is that you're not noticing oh i can't believe that was you know two hours have passed trust me nobody ever gets bored at any of my presentations i've never seen anybody get up and leave because they were bored I, th- I think that the hope is with something like this, and I've checked out, uh, what's it called again? The New York Adventure Club? New York Adventure Club, yeah. Yeah, I've checked out the list of things. I think the hope is that it's not just something you're sitting down in front of your computer for, but you, you carve out that time. It's almost as if you're going to that show. You want to sit yeah. there and enjoy it. And, okay, this is what I'm doing tonight. So you, you need right. to carve out that time. So yeah. Imagine watching a two-hour Ken Burns documentary on jazz mm-hmm. or any one of his, you know, hundreds of subjects that he's done. Yeah. Like I said, you know, if you like, if you want to see a documentary about the Twilight Zone in the age of corona mm-hmm. and how so many great episodes, mostly by Serling, but every now and then by one of the other great writers and how they were eerily prescient for what we're going through right now. If that doesn't sound like a kind of interesting documentary about the twilight zone, Mm -hmm. that's what I basically present live in still images in video clips and in my verbal voiceover presentation. It's like a live documentary being made, you know, in the moment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And if that interests you, great. If that doesn't, okay. There's plenty of other things to watch on the internet. You can watch movies and shows and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you have not only got your Twilight Zone presentation over there, but you, you, you're doing a bunch of stuff over there, aren't you? And, and fandoms often cross. You know, I'm a comic book fan as well as well as a Twilight Zone fan. So what else have you got going on over there? Well, I call the month of July with these webinars I've been doing, like Arlen Schumer's greatest hits. Like this is my best foot forward in terms of the smorgasbord of pop culture offerings. Even though, like I said, I've made my living as an illustrator working in comic book style, 
comic books are kind of my first love. Well, at the same time I discovered comic book imagery, I also discovered the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. I also discovered rock and roll through the Beatles. I also discovered, um, you know what I'm saying? So music, rock and roll, Twilight Zone and comics are my three uh, children in a way. Mm -hmm. And just in the same way you can't decide which of your children you love the most, I love all three areas of interest equally, and I've done works of art, and I use the word art in quotes, whether it's graphic design, books, lectures, projects, on each subject matter that have been published and have been enjoyed by audiences of each of those three. So for these webinars, um, in the month of July, I just did two comic book webinars, one around July 4th about the best versions of Captain America in the comics. The other one I just did two nights ago on black superheroes of the 60s, of the Silver Age of comics. And I chose that concept because of everything that's happened post-George Floyd that, you know, there were black superheroes created by white artists to try to give the black audience a hero that they didn't have in the history of comics. And it started in the 60s. So I just did that two nights ago. Um, so next week is my other great love, The Twilight Zone, ahead of its time on the 15th of July. The week after that on the 22nd is my Bruce Springsteen retrospective of his greatest live performances that have been captured on film or video. And even if you're a Bruce fan, I'm going to be showing some very rare, hard to find, even though everything nowadays is on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, trust me, the, the average Bruce fan, and I know there's plenty in England, um, are going to love that one. And again, that's my other area of love. I was art director Bruce's first fan magazine when I was at Rodan School Design, majoring in graphic design. So, I, hey, I'm the greatest Bruce fan you're ever going to meet. Don't get me started <laughs> on that stuff there. But, and then, are you ready for this? Speaking of an English audience. Go on. End July on the 29th. These are all Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh -huh. But, of course, if you buy a ticket and you're in Europe, you can watch it at any time for up to a week afterwards, a, a recording of the live presentation. Mm. So, literally when you watch a recording of it, it's like it was live for you in the moment. Um, but the point is, is it's going to be the Sean Connery Bond canon, the first four films, which I think are not only his greatest films, they're the greatest Bonds, and they are the canon. And it's Dr. No from Rush With Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball. I don't consider You Only Live Twice part of the canon. That, to me, represents the decline of Bond. Really? And I've got very specific reasons for that. But, and I've got specific reasons for why those four are the canon. So in another probably two-and-a-half-hour webinar, I'm going to be showing clips from all four of those Bond films. Mm -hmm. Again, bracketed with still images that will try to recreate the era that they debuted and why they're, I believe they are the canon. And the very first cinematic image I can recall as a child, my mother, may she rest in peace, took my brother and I, he's a year and a half older, 
My mother was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. We had no father figures. When I discovered superheroes in comics, they were my first surrogate father figures. Mm-hmm. But she took us to see Dr. No at a drive-in movie theater. I must have been about five years old. And there on the big screen, remember, no father. Uh-huh. I see Sean Connery, giant size. At the end of Dr. No, he's in a ripped T-shirt crawling through these tubes with the hot water rushing past them for the nuclear reactor of Dr. No. Mm-hmm. And I remember that image on the giant, you know, drive-in movie theater screen. So he becomes a surrogate father figure, Sean Connery. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Rod Serling became a surrogate father figure. And even Bruce Springsteen, though he's only nine years older than me, has kind of been a bit of a, if not a father figure, a big brother figure. You know, I'm imagining this lovely scene, maybe a painting with Bruce, Rod Serling, and James Bond standing over Arlen Schumer's crib. You know, what a beautiful scene that is. Thank you. You know what? I might have to produce that. That sounds like a great illustration. I might have to do that. Uh, thank you for that. That's great inspiration. But you know what? I, I really love that because that's in a sense what they what they became yeah, yeah. Um, for me. And I've been spending the rest of my life as a creative artist and graphic designer, basically feeding those images and ideas back to my audience in the form of books or lectures or, you know, illustrations, graphic design. You know, Tom, a friend of mine gave me a quote about 15 years ago from the great existentialist writer, Albert Camus, Mm -hmm. who wrote the novel, The Stranger. And it went like this. A man's work is nothing but this slow trek to rediscover through the detours of art, those two or three great and simple images Mm -hmm. in whose presence his heart first opened. My very first television image is the Twilight Zone eyeball hanging in space from the 1963 opening again. I had it be four and a half years old when I saw that. Mm-hmm. And embossed on the hardcover slip underneath the slipcase of my coffee table book, Visions from the Twilight Zone, still the only coffee table book about the show, mm-hmm. came out right after Mark Zickery's book. I tried to be the art director of Zickery's book, The Twilight Zone Companion. I was shut out because Bantam did the book in-house. Yeah. Well, 10 years later, I come out with my book on The Twilight Zone. And at the time, there were only three books about television, The Making of Star Trek and The Twilight Zone Companion. My book is the third book about television. Yeah. Now, when you go into a bookstore, back when we used to go into stores, you know, there's a whole section about books about television. Mm-hmm. But I digress. Embossed underneath the hardcover, a slip jacket, is the Twilight Zone eyeball on the black cloth hardcover. Even though the book's out of print, if you go to Amazon, because it's linked to all the secondhand book sites, if you want to buy the book, you can get it. You can look for the hardcover. It's going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. And I basically treat the Twilight Zone images like black and white art photography. And the dialogue and narration, I typeset it to read like poetry. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is 
I've been, that Albert Camus quote is exactly what I've been doing. I've been feeding back images like that in the work that I've done as an adult. Mm -hmm. And it's a form of paying it forward and also paying homage to what basically influenced me to become an artist and make a living and share it with people. Yeah, yeah, good, good. I have been lucky enough to see your updated version of that book. Yes. Now, I, I've said in the past that... Bittersweet. It is... I can't get it published. It, it's the best way of sitting, me sitting down and getting into that Twilight Zone feeling. Yes. You know, the feeling I had as a young boy staying up till two o'clock in the morning in England, right. watching that show. And the it, blue glow of the TV set from the black right. and white exactly. television in the dark room. We all have that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, how much of this is a dream and how much of this is real? You just don't know. And and what it's right reality? it's right there in your book. And there's a nice updated version. I'm privileged to have seen it. Um, but any news on that, man? I wish I had better news. I haven't been able. I finished it in 2017. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the chance as an artist to go back to a piece of work you did 25, 30 years ago that you were never fully happy with because of the way you had to produce it mm -hmm. under a deadline, mistakes were made, things I couldn't catch. It was my first published book. But to be able to go back practically 30 years later and get it perfect is the sweet part of the bittersweet. The bitter part is that everybody I've shown it to has rejected and nobody wants to publish it. Mm -hmm. Even though you would think with the new series and all the interest in the Twilight Zone, there's so many websites. I mean, this is my frustration. Now, maybe somebody listening to this podcast is a publisher and wants to publish it. Um, but, you know, for now, it remains a finished yet unpublished book. Uh -huh. um, I believe, I believe in it, and I hope to one day get it published. But you know, I can't self-publish it because I need to have the rights from CBS, right? Which is a whole nother story because I think everything I do is fair use, but nobody wants to publish a fair use book. Mm -hmm. So the point is, is in order to get CBS to sign off on it, I need a major publisher. Right. CBS doesn't just give rights to an individual. So I need a publisher that wants to deal with CBS uh -huh. and a lot of publishers, they don't want to spend the money on licensing, but listen, I've got to publishers, especially in England. I've gone to Tosh and I've gone over there in Germany. Um, what do you call it? Um, Titan books. Mm. They publish licensed books and they rejected it. So for whatever reason, Tom, I can't get it published, but I'll never, you know, I'll always believe in it. I'll always hope to publish it. Mm -hmm. And if anybody out there listening really wants to see it, you just email me and I'll send it. I'll send you a PDF of it. I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just, I just hand it out, you know, for free now in a sense, but um, technically I can't, you know, publish it on my own because of CBS. So <laughs> all of my, books are basically my book about comic book history. I had to deal with DC and Marvel comics. You know, I'm really a pop artist. I take 
copyrighted material that I don't own and I manipulate it as a graphic designer artist and I feed it back transformed as a new work of art. And I'm purposely using the legal language because in order to be under the law of fair use, which is a very gray area law, the only way you can use copyrighted material is it has to be transformative into a new work of art. Mm -hmm. And then in America, you're allowed to basically publish it or sell it. The problem is intellectual property owners, they don't want to recognize fair use. Yeah. To them, everything's infringement and they've got the money to sue you if you do that, even though you might have a fair use project. Mm-hmm. So my book about the silver age of comics, which I still am able to sell, it's still in print, but I had to sign a licensing deal with DC and Marvel, even though a fair use attorney, an expert in fair use, looked at my proposal for my book and said, Arlen, it's totally fair use. Yeah. In fair use, it has to be in some kind of historical or critical context when you use copyrighted material. Mm-hmm. There, if you're using images, there has to be text. Every one of my projects fulfills every fair use clause. And yet, if I went to a publisher with my Twilight Zone book, and I said, hey, you don't have to go to CBS. This is fair use, man. Look, I've created a new work of art, a book about the Twilight Zone mm-hmm. that treats the images like art photography. I've transformed television images into beautiful black and white art photography. I transformed dialogue and narration into typeset poetry. It's the definition of fair use. But no publisher is going to say, oh, yeah, I'll publish that. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be sued by CBS. Yeah. And this is the problem. So I've had to de- I have a book ab- about Bruce Springsteen. I can't publish it without Bruce's and his people's approval. So that's what I do. Uh, my, it's a, been a little bit of a blessing and a curse, so to speak, that that is my art as an artist. Mm-hmm. I don't own Bruce's music. I don't own those Twilight Zone images. I don't own when I do my comics history projects, but I've taken them out of their original context in the same way Roy Lichtenstein took comic book panels from a printed story and turned them into giant paintings. We're still arguing over, is that art, Mm -hmm. what Roy Lichtenstein did? And the people that defend the the original comics say, no, he copied and traced and that's not his work and blah, blah, blah. When you change the context of found art you know the most famous example is the very first piece of found art from the 20th century which is the famous marcel duchamp 1912 that famous exhibit in new york i forget maybe it was in paris i don't know where he took a urinal a porcelain urinal and stuck it in the middle of an art gallery Mm. and called it art that's considered the very first piece of found art Why is it art? Because he changed the context. A urinal you're used to seeing in a bathroom Uh where it belongs. Yeah. But when you see it in a museum or a gallery, by changing the context, people who criticize Lichtenstein, what they're missing is the context change. The very act 
of taking the comic panel and then painting it as a giant painting and putting it in a gallery or museum is context change. Right. Me making a coffee table book using the Twilight Zone images, using the dialogue and narration as a coffee table art book, enough said. It's context change as well as artistically transformed. And yet, no publisher is going to publish it based on just me telling them that. Because fair use has gone to court and lost. Uh -huh. Remember the famous Obama Hope poster? Yeah. That was done by a, also a RISD alum named Shepard Ferry. And he was sued by the Associated Press that Shepard Ferry based his silkscreen, that image of Obama was from a photograph. But of course he artistically transformed it. He made a silkscreen out of it. And by adding, you know, it was original black and white photograph of Obama, a portrait mm -hmm. photo. Well, when you look at the finished Shepard Ferry Hope poster, it's a, you know, very brightly colored silkscreen transformation. Uh, he lost. They sided with the Associated Press, mm -hmm. which as an illustrator who's worked from photo reference for decades as my career, I was aghast at that decision. Right. Anyway, but I digress. Um, but that's my Twilight. Uh, I forget what the original question was. Something about the, the Twilight Zone book. <laughs> just, just to see how it was going. But what, yeah. I, what I would say is this. I mean, I suppose the sad thing is a lot of people listen to this show. And if you said to me, let's set up a crowdfund, I know the money would be there straight away. It's just who could facilitate that the legal side of it with cbs i don't know how that works you know what i mean and that that's the sad uh, thing it sucks yeah it sucks believe me you know they say never wish a lawsuit on anybody having as an artist having to deal in the legal arena sucks uh -huh. yeah so that's all i can say it's a necessary evil you have to do it especially and i've done it and i've paid the price for it but listen, the next best thing people can do is they can buy my Silver Age book. I actually have images of Twilight Zone in my Silver Age book when I'm talking about the great Steve Ditko, the guy that created Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. The characters he drew in these short little fantasy stories pre-Spider-Man are very much like Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah, They have surprise endings. They're, they feature the everyman, just like Serling and company did. And even the story of Spider-Man is a Twilight Zone version of a superhero. Why? Those surprise endings are based on irony. Mm -hmm. What is the irony? You know, every DC Comics superhero before Spider-Man, when they got their powers, they said, I'm gonna go fight crime. Spider-Man gets his powers, the first thing he says is, I'm gonna go make money. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go on television. That was radical. But what is the irony of Spider-Man? That by being selfish, he doesn't capture the bandit that he could have who ends up killing his uncle Ben yeah. and yeah. teaching him that with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. That is a Twilight Zone surprise ending mm -hmm. that Steve Ditko drew. So you can't buy my Twilight Zone book, but go to my website, silveragecomicbookart.com, my merchandise site, and I'll sign and sketch in my book about comic book history that I guarantee you, whether you like comics or don't, even if you don't, I guarantee you, you'll love my book.
there's no other book like my book. So you can still support your local freelance artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, you know, I do a lecture called Comics and the Twilight Zone, where I show how the EC science fiction comics of the early 50s influenced a lot of Twilight Zone episodes. In fact, I, the Beholder, the great episode about the pig faces, mm-hmm. there's a 1953 EC science fiction story about a woman on another planet where she's again beautiful to us, but everybody on the planet, it's called the ugly one, mm-hmm. looks like reptiles. Well, Serling read comics. He was in World War II. All the soldiers read comics. I, he loved science fiction, fantasy, Ray Bradbury. EC Comics adapted some Ray Bradbury stories into comic form. Mm-hmm. So I guarantee you Serling read EC science fiction comics. And I bet you that story lodged in his brain and he never admitted it. It was never raised legally, but I, the beholder is basically a twilight Zone episode version of this eight page or five page EC science fiction story from 1953. Mm -hmm. So I do a whole lecture about that. I've done a lecture, uh, Westport in the twilight zone. Uh, the town that Serling lived in, in the fifties before he went out to do the twilight zone. Yeah in Los Angeles and how so much of what he got living in this suburban uh, commuter town to New York City, he fed back in Twilight Zone and episodes like Willoughby and things like that. If people want to check out the next lecture with the New York Adventure Club, what do they need to do? When is it? Just remind us of that. Yeah, so it's Wednesday, July 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll be doing it live, uh, English and European audiences. If you buy a ticket and you don't want to watch it live because it's very late at night, um, buying a ticket allows you to watch a recording of the live webinar for up to a week afterwards at your leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to just nyadventureclub.com and you'll scroll to their monthly offerings, you'll see my Twilight Zone as well as the um, webinars I'm doing after Twilight Zone and into August and September. Um, but all the ones of July, like Bruce Springsteen and James Bond, are up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to my website, arlenschumer.com, and make sure you spell my name right, A-R-L-E-N and S-C-H-U-M-E-R, um, I post all my information on my blog page, that's a sub page of my website. So that's really all you need to know is nyadventureclub.com and you'll be able to get everything done there or arlenschumer.com. Great. And Facebook friend me, you know, um, I always post things on my Facebook page. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Tumblr, um, you know, and basically I don't hide behind pseudonyms. I'm Arlen Schumer basically at Arlen Schumer. I don't have any, you know, weird kind of things like that. So it should be easy to find me. The homepage of ArlenSchumer.com is linked. There's little icons for all of these um, social media things. So, mm-hmm. but Facebook is where I interact the most with people. It's the most friendly format I found, even though a lot of people are on Twitter. Uh, I need a lot more than 140 characters if you've gleaned that just from this no, uh, really? this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Twitter doesn't cut it for me. 
Okay, okay. Arlen, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it, man. I love you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll speak to you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>